Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of News of the World, the program that looks at the news from around the world. Some stuff you've heard about, some stuff you may not have heard about, and that's what we do. We bring it all. And we means myself, Mark Fonseca-Rendeiro, coming to you from Amsterdam and over there in Germany in the small town of Berlin. There is one Tim Pritlove. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hey. Yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. That's me. And we're reiterating this fact over and over again every I, time we come to you. I think this comes from traditional radio where we always heard like, I'm so-and-so and you're listening to Thingy Thing. And we still do that, even though we're not on traditional radio. Yeah, you are a bit more traditional than I am. I usually Ooh. start my podcast just by saying like, hi. Hi. And then yeah. go on, you know, because ah. everybody knows everything anyway. That's a good point. We'll consider consider that. I'll consider that. Yeah. yeah. Next week, it'll be like the chicken. like <laughs> Hello. I mean, we could also stop halfway, you know, and turn to the new listeners that have just switched to the program. Ah, yes, that style. Okay. All right. All right, new listeners and old listeners. We, we hear you. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway. Uh, we've got some difficult news in the queue, Tim. Some difficult news. And let's start it off in the place where the most difficulty seems to be taking place. And that is Syria. Although in this case, we'll look at Lebanon right next door. Uh, the headlines have been saying Syrian war spills over or signs of spillover. As many people know, there has been this fear that the uh, civil war going on in Syria would get into Lebanon, especially because you have different factions in Lebanon that side with either Assad or the rebels. And indeed, this week there has been uh, violence in uh, the northern city of Tripoli. Uh, there was this case of rockets being uh, launched in a suburb of Lebanon, which is uh, in uh, Beirut, which is pretty uh, uh, scary, even though, I mean, Beirut is a huge place. And uh, Many people making the conclusion that this is the beginning of a lot more. Myself, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think there are plenty of people in Lebanon that aren't interested in starting a civil war again. Uh, but the articles are starting to come out. Uh, I even saw in the Lebanese newspaper Daily Star a story about Lebanese army soldiers getting killed at a, at a border post. Uh, no one knows who did it. And uh, it, it really is more than the usual tension in, in Lebanon right now. Um, so, yeah. And, and at the same time, by the way, this week we had a arms embargo end. The EU had an arms embargo on giving arms to the Syrian rebels. That is now over. It was not renewed. So uh, as far as I can tell, France and the UK, for example, can now supply rebels with weapons. And I think both countries in the past have supplied other, like in Libya, have su supplied uh, rebels with uh, weapons. They might do it again, I suspect. I find the situation in Lebanon very interesting. I mean, probably not everybody understands what the relationships here are, but the Hezbollah has been supported by both Iran and Syria, and Syria was especially useful because it was so close to um, to Lebanon. So this was the Uh, channel has always been for uh, weapons and uh, other kinds of support. So the Hezbollah and the Syrian government 
have been close allies for a very long time now. And looking at the religious background of this conflict, not that it's all related to religion, but it plays a major role or ethnic background in, in, in that respect, um, the Syrian government, mostly Alawites, Alawites, how do you say that? Alawites? Yeah, I say Alawites, yeah. Alawites. Um, and there's a, a majority of Sunnis in, in Syria, so you can say that most of those uprising people are probably Sunnis. And um, the Hezbollah is Shiit, like Iran. And uh, although the I don't know how close the Alawites are to the Shiite ethnic group or religious beliefs at all, if there's any direct relationship or if this relationship is just more a practical relationship because feeding the Hezbollah and creating uh, tensions with Israel is also a part of how to stay in power in Syria. Mm. I, I don't even know uh, all those very specifics when it comes to how close these groups are in terms of religion, but like you say, in terms of practicality, uh, I know that they're close. Uh, so in this case, Hezbollah is definitely fighting alongside the Assad government. They've aligned their future sort of with the future of the Syrian government. They're fighting in, uh, there was a, an offensive this week in Qusair where the Assad forces have been focusing and Hezbollah is there fighting right alongside the, the Syrian government forces. Uh, this is a city that lies along the highway that connects uh, Damascus to the Mediterranean. Uh, almost forgot that you know Syria does have a, a, um, a coast there on the Mediterranean that can be quite important for getting well supplies and other things. Yeah, that's also the the Alawites' uh, homeland, and that's that city is also directly on the route uh, con connecting the capital Damascus with the Alawite homeland. So this city is very, very super important and it has been under rebel control for almost a year now, I think. Mm. So, yeah, and um, it's, uh, the, you know, this question of how, how bad will it get now in Lebanon? And as many people know, Lebanon is a place with a lot of divisions in terms of, uh, even if, if you're just taking Beirut, you know, they, they, there's a line in the city and traditionally, there were stark differences uh, on either side of that line. Some of that has changed a little, but there are a lot of militias. There are a lot of divisions along, uh, yes, religious lines, but also ethnic lines. And uh, people believe that this could uh, spark more conflict in the country. I mean, there is an army, but uh, like I said, there are also militias, so... Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it can be very yeah, complicated. And the, and the Hezbollah is de facto in power in the south of Lebanon. Mm. I mean, it's not that the Libyan army really is ruling the whole country, you know. Um, so the Hezbollah is a very strong force and now it looks as if there's payback time, sort of. You know, Syria has been supporting Hezbollah for a very long time. And now with the Syrian government in trouble, they're all, you know, in the name of the Lord, of course, you know, <laughs> they're joining the, this fight, this struggle, and sort of attacking the rebels from both sides. And the question is, how will Lebanon react? Because traditionally, um, the country tries, always tries to get out of the way of all these troubles, just not 
you know, very easy to <laughs> to do yeah. that in, in that particular region. It was, when I was there in December in, in Lebanon, it was a very sensitive subject. Some people didn't want to talk about it at all uh, because they, they I, well, I'm not sure why. Maybe they just wanted to focus on their own lives and their own problems. A lot of people got very annoyed with talking about Syria, saying, uh, you know, they have their own issues. But uh, here we are, and it, it looks like, you know, it's, it's much more of a reality now than it's been for the past few months. It becomes harder and harder to ignore uh, because even even among people I think who have no interest in in fighting, uh, what happens when you know some armed groups start uh, attacking them or attacking different sites in the city in the country? You know what do you do? Mm. Uh, that's that's what I'm wondering. And uh, hopefully we don't find out. I mean, hopefully it doesn't come to that, and these events are small and won't get any bigger. And regarding this new situation with arms supply at least being possible uh, from EU countries, what do you think will happen? I mean, has any country announced that they are about to do this? I think they never really announce, uh, especially in this situation where some governments don't want to come out totally in favor of the rebels. Uh, you know, in the Libyan conflict, it's documented medical aid would come in and so would weapons. Uh, it's, it's discussed over and over again. And I think now you may have that, uh, not necessarily with medical assistance, but a, a quiet support. Um, and that may be almost better than this scenario where there's an embargo. So now, you know, through the sort of black and go out, uh, it's, I mean, in the end, weapons are always going in, in that direction. But now at least perhaps it can be somehow, I don't know, organized and uh, I'm not sure. Okay, uh, we will see how this uh, uh, turns out, but that's... A very delicate subject. Yeah, and it's a big deal for the rebels who feel uh, quite outgunned, if I can use the term, mm -hmm. uh, when compared to the government that's well equipped, especially with the more the bigger stuff, the fighter jets and the and the larger um, arms. Okay, let's uh, turn to another continent. Yes, I wanted to have a little more Latin America this week, and it's been a quite Latin American week for me. Uh, just one week ago, or a few, no, a few days ago, actually, on Sunday, we had the, the global Monsanto protest. I don't know if you were out on the streets, Tim, over here. I, I went to a farm to go hang out with cows, but uh, <laughs> I did. I did in honor of really? the day. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but in Mexico, uh, you had one of the larger protests, and it's actually part of something that's been going on for some time, protest against uh, genetically modified corn. So... Mexico has been allowing uh, GMO corn to be planted in some northern states as a sort of experiment, a test. And that's Monsanto, uh, the most famous Monsanto, and Syngenta, a lesser-known company, that have been doing it. And uh, people from all walks of life in Mexico are really coming out against this now. They're demanding the government not expand the program, which is actually planned. Um, and, and what you have is... You know, of course, a country that loves corn. Uh, mm -hmm. They have their own indigenous strain of corn, many indigenous strains of corn. But you also have this weird situation where, according to most reports, they're now importing 30% of what they consume. Uh, apparently, 
Mexican farmers to this point haven't been able to keep up with the demand. Now, I don't read anyone saying they're going hungry, but they're importing. Okay. So you have the government, including like this association of Mexican corn producers, which, you know, I'm not aware of who's in it. It could be just the big agribusinesses of Mexico. They want GMO corn. So, of course, these companies are happy to bring it. And you even have big names like Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation and their wealthy uh, Mexican counterpart, Carlos Salim, who is big in the telecommunications world. You know, they've been promoting this idea. And they, they don't say, you know, we're bringing you GMO. They say, we're going to take technology and combine it with agriculture and we're going to reduce hunger in Mexico. Uh, so there have been powerful forces pushing for this. And there are what seem like, you know, the less powerful, the less, you know, the poorer people who are now coming out against it. Um, and and I, I don't know what will happen uh, in the long term, but in the short term, you have a lot of street battles and protests and, and very angry people who take this issue, you know, very seriously. Hmm. So what is this corn? I mean, why is corn being uh, imported? Is it used for just um, create sugar? Or is it just for nutrition purposes? Well, I think in the end it can go to either one because, of course, yeah, you have this high fructose corn syrup and, and other corn sugar related products. But no, I, th I think it's more for uh, f actual food and, mm. and nutrition. Um, you know, you, some of the examples of the GMO corn I've read is like GMO corn that is really good in heat that can handle hotter temperatures than than you know the the average corn so okay crops will be less likely to on, on these extremely hot summers to be destroyed um so you know it's it's for nutrition but but part of the reason they're pushing for these gmo crops is to say well these are going to make it you're going to have more corn for what you usually do and where do these mass protests uh take place The ones I read about this week were, were in Mexico City primarily uh, and in Puebla where I happen to have friends who, who were telling me about it. Uh, but I, the protests on, on Sunday took place around the world. I mean, here in Amsterdam, we had a, a relatively large one. I think they were under, uh, well, there were about a thousand people, uh, mixed reports about how many. But I think uh, in a lot of major cities, I think Paris had one. Um, after that, I'm not really sure. The, the Google map had points all over the world but uh i'm not sure you know how that translates to real life mm -hmm. from the google map yeah um i also thought it was weird initially because it was just like global day against monsanto on a on a sunday in may and i thought well why why exactly today it, it's you know it's always difficult when you have a protest against something that isn't exactly right there in front of you um, I mean, if it's a war, because we had that some years ago, okay, you know, you're saying, hey, our government, don't support this war. Okay. So it was kind of a, it's a difficult subject to, to have a protest against if, you know, there's no one from Monsanto in that moment, uh, you know, in some office or, or somewhere. So it was, it's kind of, I don't know what you call that, but it's, uh, you don't have the direct thing to demand, like, stop now. What they were demanding is, you know, don't allow GMO food, GMO crops in the Netherlands, in Europe. But we already do, uh, you know, in the context of soy, we allow it 
for animals. So it's, it's, um, it's a really difficult subject because it's so complicated, because of not just laws, but things that are already happening. Uh, you know, GMO is, is kind of a reality. It's just a matter of how far we let it go. And so, you know, in this case with Mexico, clearly they're trying to draw a line that says, okay, you've done some experiments, but you're not going to make this uh, a countrywide thing. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to fight these guys, obviously. <laughs> okay. Mm. Mm. All right. Watch your corn, people. Yeah, I do. <laughs> All right. Here's one I've been uh, I've been waiting. A lot of people have been waiting for the the other. What do we say? The other shoe to fall. Uh, Ethiopia and the Nile. So okay, we've got the Nile that travels up right to the Mediterranean. It eventually gets to Egypt, but before it gets to Egypt, it goes through. Well, the Blue Nile goes through Ethiopia. Ethiopia has started, or actually almost completed, their uh, Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. I think that, that, let's see, acronym GERD. The GERD is almost (laughs) finished. It's a a $12 billion project uh, funded partially by China. China's been doing a lot in Ethiopia, including building of their new uh, parliament. And uh, once it's completed now being called the Millennium Dam, if you don't like GERD. I'm going to stick with GERD. Um, Once it's completed, it's going to uh, affect the flow of the Nile into Egypt and Sudan. And both governments are concerned, some say upset, about the the creation of this dam. They themselves have dams, Sudan and Egypt. uh, And they've got this old agreement. It goes back to 1959, uh, colonial era agreement, that says uh, basically Ethiopia, um, no, Egypt and Sudan have veto powers over what uh, anything that Ethiopia wants to do with the Nile. Um, Ethiopia has, you know, built this dam regardless of this whole veto power thing. And I mean, they tried to create a new agreement in 2010. It's called the Cooperative Framework Agreement, but it hasn't been signed by Egypt and Sudan hmm. because they claim it violates. The 1959 treaty, which gives Sudan and Egypt exclusive rights over the Nile. Now, I've been reading the the tech specs, not that I I know so much about tech specs on on dams, but according to Ethiopia, uh, the dam actually wouldn't stop the flow of water. Uh, So there would still be the Nile going through Egypt. Uh, It would have slightly less consistent flow. There would actually be less silt coming through because the dam will catch a lot of it. So that's actually kind of good for dams that already exist because you don't catch as much silt. You don't have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Egypt is concerned. I mean, this is one of those situations that my professors who were from Ethiopia uh, when I was a college student would warn me that this could cause war, that this is the kind of thing these nations would fight over because the Nile is so vital to their existence. I don't see anybody, of course, talking violence, um, but it is kind of like a wake-up call, especially for Egypt, uh, which is so buried in itself right now for obvious reasons, but still, um, that isn't, uh, well, they never thought Ethiopia would catch up, I think. And now they're like, hey, Ethiopia, well, when did you learn to make dams? And I think they're quite, I don't know, they're, they're still living in a world where, where they rule. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just not the reality anymore. Or, well, it may not be the reality in the near future. Yeah, we should... Um 
stress the point that there are actually two Niles. You know, right. we're talking about the Blue Nile, which is the uh, eastern part or the eastern source of what is becoming the Nile later on in uh, Khartoum in Sudan. So that's where the Blue Nile and the White Nile flow together. And actually, the, the Blue Nile um, starts, comes from Ethiopia. That, that's the source. So it's a it's a dam very close to the source, and um, yeah, I mean there's every right for them to do this. Although we know that dams are can cause trouble on its uh, own. Yeah. I wonder why it's called the Renaissance Dam. What's being <laughs> rebirthed here? Why well, Ethiopia? <laughs> yeah, you know, Haile Selassie and the greatness of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, they're, they're occasionally they, they, they want to show some sign that they're going back to the, the grand old days. Yeah, we've um, got the bigger dam now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the dam is designed and constructed by an Italian company. Hello, colonialism. And uh, the turbines are from Alstom, I believe. Uh, this is just off the top of my head. So it's, uh, you know, of course, a global project, but but built and partially funded by Ethiopia. Hmm. And uh, this is certainly not the last we hear of this. I'm sure there's going to be a big to-do when the dam is ready. I don't know how far they are from it. They've tried to keep a lot of it secret. Uh, it used to be called Project X. Anything that used to be called Project X has got to be cool or dangerous uh, or controversial. And so when it's done, you know, you're going to hear a lot more of these stories. And uh, I'm just wondering what Egypt and Sudan are going to do in terms of like, won't they sign a new agreement, for example, one from the last, I don't know, decade or few decades instead of this 1959 treaty. I mean, the world, that world has definitely changed since then. Uh, So that's what I'm keeping an eye out on. Like, what does Egypt do and, uh, and what does Sudan do in this situation? Okay. Yes. I wanted to do an update next. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, we covered the trial of Rios Montt in uh, Guatemala, the former president accused of genocide. It was, to put it in, uh, in W. Bush terms, it was a slam dunk, or so it seemed. And now uh, the Guatemalan court that, were, that had convicted him of genocide, I believe, they overturned the ruling of genocide and they actually are calling for what we call a redo. When we were kids, we'd say, do over. That's what they're calling for. They want to go back to April 19th, back to the, no, back to the past, not back to the future. But, but this was redone by the Constitutional Court. Yes, yes. Sorry. They're over, so the Constitutional Court is overturning uh, a ruling from, I don't know, some other court. Some other high court. But yes. does that mean that this was sort of against the Constitution? Or is in Guatemala the Constitutional Court just the highest court and can, you know, overrule anybody on anything? Uh, well, a Constitutional Court is typically the highest court in a country. Yeah, but it's usually only, you know, can only... Um, object things based on looking at the constitution if something is sort of you know against anything that is written down in the constitution Mm -hmm. while uh, any other court high court can decide on basically anything relating to the actual law so I don't know I'm just questioning this there's there's a lot of um, 
debate among people trying to guess what happens now and, and what this all means. Some people saying, yeah, this is an example of the, uh, the constitutional court doing what it's supposed to do mm-hmm. because, because this trial had, had some fundamental problems. But others are saying it's an example of how the constitutional court is messed up and uh, they're, they're accusing racism, which I don't even know fully where or how, but um, they're accusing all kinds of isms uh, that the constitutional court is corrupt. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the weirdest thing is simply there have been all these witnesses and, you know, like in cases where there's genocide, it is quite traumatic for witnesses and, and difficult and dangerous even to, to come out and, and, you know, point to their, to the, the accuser and, and, um, not the accuser, the, uh, the person who's done something. And now I don't know if that gets thrown out, if they have to do it again, but that is extremely difficult in any kind of, uh, case, uh, with such a mass crime. So that's what I'm most concerned about. It's, it's, is this really lost? Is this guy going to walk free even? Um, and, and that just seems strange. Uh, so, you know, this is supposed to be a landmark human rights case, and it could be a landmark human rights case the other way <laughs> in terms of human rights not being uh, upheld. So uh, this story is not over. Um, there's a link to one analysis of it from the Miami Herald, um, and, and that'll be in our, our show notes and you know, worth reading. It's not a super long text, but it is still somewhat confusing. Hmm. Okay, let's see what the, this turns into. Uh, I wanted to ask you this, Tim. Um, are you following the world of Vine videos? <laughs> uh, I lost my interest in Twitter a bit recently, but um, I know this program exists to those who don't know what it is. It's a, a small app yeah. made for Twitter, also bought by Twitter before it actually launched. And uh, it's a tool where you can just uh, record six seconds of video that is then expected to be played back in a loop and uh, also usually by default you watch it without the sound and then you can probably enable it later on um yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not so sure how popular it actually is uh, of course people are using it but why It's, is this here on this list Yeah, because um, there have been cases starting, and I guess it was inevitable, like you said, six-second videos. Um, there are now takedown uh, orders coming from the DMCA, which, of course, is famous for doing this with not just YouTube, but uh, in the old days, if you if you put up uh, any kind of basically copyrighted music or, or I think even film. No, that's the MPAA that gets to do that. Um, so now they're sending uh, takedown uh, letters to people who have posted, for example, footage from um, a concert. And the most famous case now is, so far, Prince. The Yes, Prince. He, his la- label is sending takedown notices. And what's <laughs> curious here is... Okay, Are you surprised? We, <laughs> I mean, yeah, people and, uh, stop going to concerts if they could also listen to six-second excerpts of it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't need to go. I have six seconds on loop. Yes. Which is mostly a lot of concerts are just a few seconds on loop anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But so, yeah, because I don't, you know, every, well, different countries have different uh, copyright uh, laws, although they really start to be uniform over time. And, uh, you know, there is such a thing as fair use. And it's often 
a, a very short amount of time that you use something, uh, a video or mostly audio. Um, and this is six seconds, but somehow, so far, they've been able to send these letters that have some kind of legal uh, power uh, saying this is a copyright violation. And one of the questions is, you know, in six seconds, is that a copyright violation or isn't it a copy violation when you actually use uh, a, a specific amount of uh, time? And I think there used to be uh, a set time with how, how long fair use qualifies for. And it was definitely longer than six seconds. I mean, in the American or the Anglo-Saxon tradition of how copyright works and uh, which sort of includes fair use, I might, it might be totally debatable if this uh, isn't fair use. And I would say, yes, it is. But no, that's up to the courts. Other jurisdictions, like in Germany, it's totally clear that there is only the protection of the content and it doesn't really matter how long your excerpt is. It's always the same. It's just the, the, the context matters in which you bring it. Like in a journalistic um, report on something, if you use it as a citation, you know, to relate to something and it's ex explicitly embedded in a comment on this or showing this as an example of something, you know, then that's uh, one of those few exceptions um, possible. So, yeah, it's probably a copyright violation. You could argue if copyright itself is a violation of common sense. Hmm. I, I read uh, in some sort of summaries of, of fair use and copyright uh, in the U.S., up to 10% of the work or no more than 30 seconds of the music. Uh, but this, this is from... Uh, University of Maryland. Uh, so, yeah, but when you talk about the, this, that policy, like in Germany, I guess, then, yeah, they could be sending these, these letters out. Well, they, they do. They do. Yeah. And we, we know that uh, this will have some consequences. And I don't think they're helping themselves much with this, you know. Mm. Um, but that's just how it is. I, I think you are, you bring up a, an, also an interesting simple interesting topic in the beginning which is i don't know how popular this is right now in the u.s over the last month vine has had a big boom uh, a big boom in use uh, it gets talked about a lot and, and it makes it into the press occasionally if something particularly i don't know unique or funny happens on vine uh but like a lot of things that have come and gone Uh, this m might not stay around for a long time. So, so the concern about Vine as a place for freedom of expression may, may pass if people just stop using it anyway. Uh, but then you have examples like Instagram, which Vine does model itself after in many ways, only in video. Um, and Instagram has a, a consistent and sort of dedicated community and it has even had a use in terms of, well, I'm going to say journalism to some extent, Although that's more just the, the art of posting pictures in, in semi-real time, like Twitter, really. Uh, so in that sense, you know, Vine could be here to stay, and, and then, then it matters even more to me, um, you know, what's okay, what's not okay, and, and who's being threatened with copyright infringement. Mm. Yeah. I don't know, but you can submit your Vine videos right now. No, <laughs> send them to us. No, no please don't. Please don't. Uh, anyway, keep an eye out on the Vine. We'll see what happens. I'm making a few on my Vine account under Bicycle Mark. Uh, oh, you I did? 
well, no, I've made one and then another one will come today and that's that's my few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you use app.net, there's something similar that's called Sprinter and that allows you to do 11 seconds. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they, they oh. took 11 seconds because the regular post is also 256 characters and the relationship between 256 and 140, the ratio is the same as 11 to 4. So that's why they did it. <laughs> huh. All right, let's let's add another one. Uh, another one, I mean another source to the news sources pile. Uh, today I wanted to add from the Christian Science Monitor, a very specific section, and that's the Latin American Monitor. So you have the Christian Science Monitor. It's a newspaper. It's um, quite respected in the United States. It's also, of course, struggling like many newspapers. It's gone to weekly. It's, it's stopped making a paper version. But they have a section called the Latin American Monitor, which is uh, a group of actually bloggers. Um, they're unpaid. And they all already have uh, Latin American news-related sites. Uh, they're sort of academics, journalists, specialists, let's call them. And they write on this uh, Latin American monitor, which is a useful place that you can just sort of scroll on a regular basis and get a summary of news from different parts of Latin America. And then with links, if you want to read on, to both the individual blogs that are more uh, usually write even more on the topic or, of course, external sources. Uh, and so this week, for example, I did use uh, Latin American Monitor for uh, the Mexican corn story and the Rios Mont uh, came up. And, and there are many more, of course, going on that I could have chosen. So that's my, uh, one of my places that I go for Latin American news. It's always tricky, right? When you want Latin American news, uh, one, the best way is to, of course, speak Spanish or Portuguese because then you have a lot more uh, choices. But if you're just doing English, then you have to you know, be a little more clever which, with, with who you read. So I mentioned the Miami Herald before as uh, Miami being a big hub for Latin American culture and information. So there you can read it in English. In this case, we have the Christian Science Monitor, an American uh, newspaper, uh, but we, you know, in this, having their section for Latin America and people who are, who are into that region. What what's your I mean what do you think about the Christian Science <laughs> Monitor what what does that mean I mean Christian and science doesn't really It's... go together well these two <laughs> words if you ask me <laughs> isn't Christian Science a contradiction in terms Yeah it it definitely has always been a weird thing in the newspaper world uh, because this newspaper is like a hundred years old. It goes back to 1904 or 19, somewhere around there. And um, when it was founded, they were already saying, pay no attention to this Christian science part. Uh, we're going to do, you know, rational and well-reported news stories. And they did have a little religious section, but they, uh, they insisted that it wasn't uh, for evangelizing. That wasn't the point. Mm -hmm. And even I think the creator or uh, one of the main people that steered the newspaper over the years uh, wanted to get away from the, the Christian science, well, the associations with Christian science, but they never let go of the, the, the term in the title. Um, it, it's probably a good thing that happened like with the web was it became, you know, csmonitor.com. Again, less influence, um, yeah, less 
stressing on the word Christian science. Uh, but yeah, I, I understand how that may seem weird. I think a lot of us in the U.S. get used to it and don't even notice after a while. Uh, but it's definitely there. <laughs> hmm. Okay. But it's still a good newspaper, and there have been, I mean, they've won Pulitzers, they've done some great international news uh, stuff, and so, you know, it's, it's not, you should not underestimate, uh, even if it's seeing some tougher days, never underestimate the Christian Science Monitor and all their Christian scienciness. No one, no one expects the <laughs> Christian Science. <laughs> their chief weapon is surprise. Yeah. Yes. So I will add this to our list on the news sources page. You're not only finding these recommendations uh, tucked into uh, the show notes of uh, each of our episodes here, but also on the overview on newsoftheworld.com. Yes, very beautiful overview. Yep, and uh, let's see, next week you're, you're going on tour, Tim. Yes, I'm going to have a heavy podcasting week and I'm not so sure we'll find the time to do show. Maybe at the end of the week uh, I'll have to see that. Okay, all right. Uh, do, you, do you want to promote your dates? Should people come see you? Are they already uh, so I, there's nothing to see. It's all uh, hidden, hidden in closed rooms, and it's just new recordings of stuff, some internal projects, uh, things that you know need to start to be started, and we'll see the light of day later on. Alrighty. Also, Alrighty. work on on the Podlove project too. Um, yeah. All right. All right, very good. Well, in that case, uh, hopefully we see you all at some point next week. And otherwise, you know where to go with the uh, comments and the uh, Twitters and all the other places. <laughs> the Vine videos, forget those. <laughs> those are essential. <laughs> yes. Six seconds. Repeat, repeat. All right. Uh, we will catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>